Well, this morning we continue in our study of the book of Romans. We've been here for several weeks uh, now, and this morning Paul comes to the conclusion of the section that we've been looking at for these past few weeks. And as we will see, that what Paul is doing is he is painting a very dark picture of our souls in order for us to be able to see more clearly why the gospel itself is so wonderful. We are in Romans chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 20 this morning. Romans 3, verse 9, hear the word of God. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin the word of our God. Let's pray. Holy God, we do come this day to honor you uh, as we lift our voices in praise and lift our prayers to you. Uh, Now we turn our minds to you. Uh, But minds alone are not enough. And so we pray that you would be at work by your spirit in our hearts, preparing our souls, uh, which is all of us, that you would open our minds Grant us the ability to understand and hearts that are willing to receive the hard truths that are revealed through these words. But we pray that you would do so so that we would know the glory of your grace, not only as it's a reflection of you, but as it is at work in our lives. Lord, We pray you would bless us through this study of these words that you have given us. To the glory of the name of Christ and to the good of all who hear. We pray in Jesus. Amen. In the early part of the the 20th century, the London Times at one point sent out an inquiry to a handful of prominent British writers asking each of them to write a brief op-ed answering the question is, what is wrong with the world today? Now, a number of the writers had written back, and each of them, using their own uh, literary flair, answered and expressed their own perspectives. And yet one writer was different. He did respond, but with 
seemingly no literary flair whatsoever. He succinctly and thoroughly answered the question at hand. And his op-ed said in response to the question, Dear Sirs, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. And so Chesterton answered the problem of the world was him. With an incredibly, not only humble, but profound insight and understanding that he offered to that newspaper. Whether the editors appreciate it or not, that part of the story hasn't seemed to have been recorded. But it's not only the editors of the London Times that are interested in the question of what is wrong in the world. Instinctively, every one of us wonders that. You can open a newspaper, turn on the television news. Frankly, you can step out into any shopping center. I suspect especially as Black Friday is coming here in a couple of weeks, and you would realize something is certainly wrong in this world. And we all wonder why. We all wonder what is the source? Where is this problem coming from? And so it's a question that we all wonder about. And the Bible also addresses this question of what is wrong with the world, and it gives us the answer, one that perhaps we we don't want to hear, uh, but more in accord with what Chesterton understood, because the answer to the question that the Bible gives us and the Apostle Paul gives us and the passage that we have or seeing before us today and the passages that we've been leading up to is what is wrong with the world today? And the answer is us, you and me and everyone that we know. For the past couple of weeks as we've been looking at this letter to the Romans, uh, we've been listening to Paul as he systematically dismantles any sense of righteousness that any person might have about himself. And he removes any possible excuse that any of us might try to offer uh, for our failures and for uh, our inconsistency and for our lack of, of righteousness. I mean, he begins with those that most of us would probably be more comfortable hearing about, the, the irreligious, the people that kind of live according to their, their own instinct, um, the, just the, the relativist, whatever they feel like doing, they, they, they do, and he, he, he mows them down. And then he turns to the moralist or the people who might be nominally religious who have some moral code and the essence of life is to be good. And he said, look, you're not any better. And then he turns to his own people, his own tribe, the, the religious, the Jews, and our spiritual forebears. And, and, would be, and he's addressing those of us who are followers of Jesus who probably up to that point might have had no problem recognizing there are people who do awful things and and stupid things in this world. And then there are people who think they're good, but they're not really following their own moral code. And we may even acknowledge that we don't, but because we're under grace, we figured uh, because we're members of a church, case that Paul addressed because they had been circumcised or because we've been baptized in order to be part of the covenant church, we figure, well, we may not be perfect, but we're covered. Paul says, not so fast. I mean, in one sense, it's kind of like Paul has batter up, strikes out batter one, strikes out batter two, strikes out the side, 
and then pitches a no-hitter. There's nobody that is left standing by the time he's done uh, with, um, with, with the argument that he has. And he's very intentionally trying to crush our pride. Now in the verses that we have before us this morning, uh, Paul offers up in, in one kind of a grand sweep of uh, the summation to the argument that he's been making in these past couple of chapters and he is diagnosing the problem, the, the source of the problem, what's wrong with the world. And then he's pointing us to its remedy. So what is the diagnosis that Paul offers? Well, it's similar to what Chesterton thought. What's wrong with the world is us. We, we see it from the very beginning of this passage. We looked at what then? Are Jews, or we could say any Christians... Any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, that means everybody, that's Paul's duality, the way he just encompasses, there's two kinds of people in the world, you know, left, right, hand, you know, whatever, Paul's is Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And, and, you know, it's that phrase, under sin, that is really significant here. It's very easy to overlook as a merely descriptive term, uh, but the language of that gives us the answer to the question of what is wrong with the world, and what is wrong with the world is that we are under sin. And the language tells us that under sin means that sin is a condition. He doesn't say here the problem is you all do sin, you all do sinful things, or you all are guilty of sin. He uses the phrase that is under sin, and it is it tells us that there is something that is power influencing us. Many of you are familiar with kind of the idea of being under the influence of something. Some of you may have, maybe in your college days, experienced being under the influence of something. Or maybe it's more recent and it's been at times that you have been on pain medications. But when you are under the influence of some substance, whether it's an alcohol or whether it's pain meds or some other kind of medication, what is true of the individual that is under that influence? There is a sense that they're they're not themselves. There is something else that is controlling the way that they perceive reality, the way that they think or or their absence uh, of thought. Um, It changes and shapes the way that they feel. And all of those things then combined at times to lead people to act in ways that they otherwise would not act. And Paul's using that same kind of language here when he's saying that we are all under sin. That sin is a condition that is influencing the way that we think, the way that we perceive, and then therefore the way that we act. Sin is not defined as simply the bad things that we do or the ways in which we fail. It is a pervasive condition that it influences every aspect of our being. And Paul says that's the problem. That's the source of the problem is that every one of us is under the influence of this thing that is dominating our personalities and moving us to do things that we were not created to do. And 
And Paul says, there's no one that is immune. I mean, think of what he says. Now, what he moves on in verse 10, as it is written, which generally is code for, I'm going to give you several quotes from the Old Testament here. So whenever you see as it is written, that's what he's talking about. And then Paul gives seven different quotations from the Old Testament, mostly from the Psalms, uh, some from Isaiah. Uh, one kind of parallels uh, Ecclesiastes. And Paul says this, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands No one seeks God. Then in verse 12, no one does good, not even one. And then moving on to verse 18, uh, you know, there is no fear of God in their eyes. So he's saying this is a universal problem that every person on the face of the earth is under the influence, the power, the dominion of sin. Later on, Paul uses a different metaphor for sin. He says that we are enslaved to sin. And when it's, it's a very similar kind of metaphor because it just means we're under the authority, we're under the power, we're under the dominion of someone else, something else that is influencing and making us do things. It owns us. And we can't escape it. And Paul says not only is this a, a universal condition, it affects every aspect of our being. Theologians refer to this as the, as the doctrine of, of total depravity. Now, some people chafe at, at the idea of total depravity or uh, they, at, the, at the thought of it, in part because it doesn't mean what some people interpret it to mean. Total depravity does not mean that you are as bad as you possibly could be or that anybody is as bad as they possibly could be. Total depravity means that there's not one aspect of your being, your personhood, that is not in some way or another Corrupted by this condition of sin. It's not being as bad as you possibly could be, as it's been said at times before. Even Hitler was nice to his dogs. He could have been worse. But what it means is this is that sin, which entered into the world through the disobedience of our first parents and has been present in every person born into the world since, is present in, is poisoning, and is influencing everything there is. Any way you were to divide what it means to be a person, to be a human being, it's affected. And the the quotations that Paul is listing here gives hint to that and tells us that it is affecting that. I mean, look at some of the quotations and some of the statements that he's saying, uh, that he's, he's talking about here. He's speaking uh, of uh, using the words from the Old Testament and saying, says this, no one understands. That's, that's affecting our, our minds. We, our minds are infected or affected because of, um, uh, because, because of sin. No one seeks after God. He's talking about our, our will, our, 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 our goals in life. Uh, when he moves on, he's, he talks about this. It, you notice that he starts using um, words related to the mouth or the tongue. Uh, uh, they use their tongues to deceive. A venom of asp is under their lips. Their throat is an open grave. Talking about the, the words that, that we use. Uh, the feet are swift to shed blood. The, the paths that we are choosing 
uh, in, in life, their past uh, ruin and misery. Everything that is in here is describing metaphorically different aspects of our personhood, whatever it means to be a human. Our minds are affected. Our bodies are affected. Our ambitions are affected. Our emotions, our desires, our, our goals, everything is affected by sin. And it is corrupting us. Now, the reality is some more than others. But for every single person, every single person that is alive, God, through Paul, is telling us the problem with the world is that we are corrupted by sin that has power and has dominion and has influence that dictates what we choose to do. Does that give us an excuse? Well, no more than the police officer who pulls you over New Year's Day after a long night out. Under the influence doesn't mean that we are exempt from responsibility. It merely explains the condition that we experience and that we are in. The question then is, isn't, is there a remedy? If this is the condition, and it's a universal condition, and it's an all-pervasive condition, is there a remedy? And the answer is there is a remedy, but it may not be exactly what you think. And we see in verses 19 and 20, Paul is beginning to point us to the remedy. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What Paul is saying here is that the answer to our corruption is not just stop it, but it is something else. It's not just stop it and do something good, to do something right. There is something else that is necessary. Now, I think that we need to admit this. is For many of us, we, we tend to operate, no matter what our doctrinal positions might be. Many of us have an operating system that measures our spirituality in this way. The less grace I need, the healthier I am. In other words, if I can keep the rules, if I can do good, if I can um, be a good person, then I don't need a lot of grace. Of course I'll need some grace, but I, need, I won't need a lot of grace. And, and the way that we measure whether or not we are that good person who needs a little grace is by the way that we relate to the law that God has laid down as the direction for the way that we're to live our lives, right? And so we see the rules. If we keep the rules, we gauge ourselves to be good people. And if we fail at any point in those rules, we recognize we have work to do. And if somebody else fails at those same rules, well, they don't have work to do, but they're bad people. We all have the same hypocrisy that operates in this way. The serious sins are the ones that you do. The sins that I just need help with are the ones that I do. And yet, and so we have this idea that when we recognize that the problem in our life is that we have become disobedient, which is the fruit of the condition that we have, well, then the answer to that is just stop it and do what is right. And it's not that, the, that doing good and doing right is not a good thing. It is just not the thing that is the remedy for the problems in the world. And if we miss that, then we will continue 
to be plagued by the problems in the world, and we will be participants and contributors to it. So Paul says something very interesting here in, in verse 20 about the law. He says, by the works of the law, which means being obedient and doing the things that the law tells you to do, no human being will be justified. In other words, you don't get excused. You don't get forgiven. You don't get cleansed. You are not standing right before God by keeping the rules of the law. It doesn't do that. In verse 19, he tells us the purpose of the law, at least as he's looking at us right now. The whole point of the law is to shut every mouth. And what he means is, those who keep the law have a tendency to feel pretty good about themselves, maybe boast, or maybe they humble brag and pretend like they still struggle, but really you feel pretty good about yourself. Many of us relate to the law the same way that the, the wicked witch did in, in Snow White. You know, we look at the law, which is a mirror to ourselves, and we look at that mirror and say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And we expect to hear the law saying, oh, well, of course, it's you. But just like in the movie, in the story of Snow White, we say, to the law, if it's the law that God has revealed, according to what Paul is saying here, mirror, mirror, who on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And the mirror is going to say, not you. And Paul is saying, and not anyone you know, and not anyone who has ever lived or breathed. There is only one. The purpose of the law is to expose the reality of the condition of our souls. The law gives us an exposure. We can use the law like a placebo, which would be wrong. In other words, we could take the law, take, think obedience to the law fixes the problem, and if that's the case, it's, it's, it, it, we are, we're not partaking of the remedy that we need. In fact, it could mask the symptoms by making us think that we are good. The law is more like those tablets you chew on before you get your teeth cleaned at the dentist. Or that nasty contrast you take and drink before you have a CT scan. It exposes what is there so that it can be dealt with. See, the remedy is not in the law itself. The remedy is what the law drives us to. Theologians refer to three uses of the law. The first use is the law is a reflection of the character of God. The law, therefore, is glorious in itself, which is why the psalmist can sing, which seems to be absurd, I take delight in your law. I mean, who delights in laws? The second use of the law is to break us and to drive us to the cross because it sets the standard of holiness in which we do look in the mirror and it says everything is out of disorder, some things more than others. But because we see that, it drives us to the cross because that's our only hope. And what Paul is doing is he is saying, here's the problem. And he is driving us to the cross. We need to see this passage, dark as it is, in light of Romans 1, 16 and 17, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he lays, you know, that's the intro to the whole book, really, because that's the whole theme. It's the beauty and the glory of the gospel that actually makes us feel bad before we can be well. 
And we need to see it in light of what is going to come that we will look at next week. Against the darkness of our condition. And the law, trying to keep the rules, doesn't make us righteous. We will explore God's grace that says, but there is a righteousness apart from the law that comes from God that is ours through faith in what Jesus has done on the cross. And so the condition of what is wrong in the world, we are all under the influence of sin, and it is impacting, affecting, corrupting every part of our being, every one of us. And the remedy is the cross. It's not stated here. But the foundation is laid to prepare us for what is coming next. But why is this here? I mean, why these verses? I mean, God says all scripture is God breathed, and we, we chose out something here that really has no good news to us this morning. Well, I chose and Camper agreed and you all are having to throw it to break it up this way. We could have read the next part too. But I think there's some things that even in understanding our condition that are important for us to take in, to take this seriously. This is not just a, a prerequisite. There are some things here that are important as well. First is this. Understanding the depth of my depravity has an effect on the depth of my love for God. Jesus asked the question, who loves more? The one who's forgiven a little or the one who's forgiven much? The answer that's immediately given is the one who is forgiven much. We, we all understand that. But what we fail to recognize is that we fail to see the extent of depravity in our own lives. It's easy for us to assume that God's grace is merely the help that we need to get over the hump rather than the totality of what we need to live, to breathe, to have joy, fellowship with God, and for life to be everything that God has designed it to be. If you look at life as kind of an obstacle course and you are pretty much over the wall and all you need is kind of a little bit of a nudge to get you over the top, you're thankful. But you will probably assume, I'd probably forget it anyway. And so while you may be thankful and you may have an affection for the one who has helped you, it doesn't demand your all and devotion. But if you recognize that your condition is totally corrupted and you are without hope and you are dead in your sin and dead people don't do much to help themselves, but someone reached down and made you alive and then not only made you alive by breathing but gave you life, that person has your heart. And we love because he first loved us. And we only know the extent of his love when we recognize 
the depth of our own depravity. Now, I think I need to touch on this because, uh, and it's related to that, because some people have absolutely tremendous testimonies. I used to be envious of them. I mean, I'm pretty boring. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but I never went to jail. Didn't do anything that would be worth boasting about. I was a jerk, but you know, that's pretty common. My priorities were out of whack, but that's pretty common. And so God still did an amazing work to draw me to himself, to bring me to life, the same as he did anybody. Dead is dead, so it doesn't matter how great the testimony. But the reality is some of you are more boring than I am. My wife certainly is. she in here? Um, no, second service anyway. Soon after we started dating, I mean, she had the, you know, it, it, she had the, our home church was a very, very, very large church, um, about 2,500 people when we were in college, and her father was the administrator, so she was the, you know, she was the, the darling. Um, I was considered a good guy until I started dating her, and then I was not good enough. Anyway, um, I just didn't measure up. But as we started dating, I asked her, so what's the worst thing you ever did? She said, well, when I was, when I was a kid, my dad told me to stab. He was, you know, doing some work in, in the yard and told me to, you know, not step in the street, but I stuck my foot out over the curb. I said, wow. I think in some laws it states there's laws against that kind of stuff. You're just lucky you were in Tennessee. There were no, you know, where anything goes. But, um, you know, and, and some of you are as boring as she was in terms of that. But God does a glory. The issue is not, it's not a competition. That if you don't have a lot of things that people would consider scandalous, that therefore you can't see the depravity in your life. The issue is it's a process. You don't need to go out and sin more because you already have plenty in it already. And to recognize that whatever part of your body and part of your soul, part of your life has been infected, you're able to confess that to God and then trace that line back because there's plenty of depth. The issue is not whether you are more thankful than somebody else whether you love God based on recognizing how he has loved you. And those of you who are boring because you grew up in good, godly families, God has loved you in a way that is easy to overlook because he spared you a lot of pain. This is important because understanding the depth of my depravity helps me to, it will, it affects my depth of love for, for God. But understanding the depth of my depravity and understanding depravity also affects my capability of loving others. Now, let's get honest. Some people are hard to love. There's an old saying that I heard at some point back is, you know, there are some people who bring joy wherever they go and others bring joy whenever they go. Um, and we all know people like that. Some of you consider me to be one of those. But anyway, that's a... Um, and there's some people who do evil. And we don't even want to love them. But when we recognize what depravity is, and that sin is a condition that is, we're under, and that we have been delivered from it, a couple of things change. First of all, we recognize there but the grace of God, I go, because we have been delivered by God's grace, made us alive, and put us on the path towards righteousness. And some of those people that are hard to love are among those who will also be delivered, but they haven't yet been delivered. That kind of brings a level of humility. Now, some of the people 
that are difficult to love are already on the same path that we are, and they're still difficult to love. Steve Brown, who's a professor at Foreign Theological Seminary, uh, also at one point he made this statement that I think is appropriate to Christians who disappoint us. He says this, if you have a dog who plays chess, you don't criticize his moves. You're just glad he's playing at all. And so Christians that are in process, if we understand that while they have been set free, we're still in process of living out that freedom. And it changes everything about the way that we look at other people. And one of the most radical examples that I can think of, Jonathan Edwards, when he was writing out a list of resolutions while he was a college student, among the resolutions was this, every time I see, every time someone sins against me, every time I see somebody else sin, I'm going to use that as an opportunity to repent of my sin. Because I recognize that my sin is against God, which is greater than anything anybody might do against me. Because while anyone who sins against me is sinning against another one who is like them, a creation who also has sinned against God, my sin is against God who is holy and perfect and who has loved me and given his own son for me. And seeing other people in that light and seeing even their sin as an opportunity for us to confess our own sin somehow changes our hearts toward the people who are around us. Understanding the depravity of our own natural condition apart from the grace of God shapes us changes us in very practical ways. So we have a problem. And the problem is us. But we also have a blessing. Because God is at work to make all things right. For those believe. We'll talk about that next week. Father, we thank you for this word. And may even these difficult truths shape our minds and our hearts. That we may love you and may love one another and others. Because you have first loved us. All praise to you, our God. We pray in Christ.